wall again. In the future, I hope to... Spend time getting to know each member of our company, learning about you individually. Joker, huh? I know about all your other major enemies, but you never mention him. He was a psychopath. A monster. I want you to give back the Batman suit. I deserve the answers, Bruce. Every time I put on that suit, it's my chance to help people who are in trouble. It's what I want, Bruce. The Joker knew about Bruce. About me. I know there's more. The real Joker was unlike anyone you've ever faced. And for your sake, I hope you never do. I'm going after him. McGinnis! Time to sit back and enjoy the two true freaks internet radio broadcast. Stop it! Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go! I got nowhere else to go! I got nothing else. Hello everybody and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spataro and as is just about always the case, I am here with my good buddy, Mr. Scott H. Gardner. How you doing, bud? <laughs> I'm doing great. Well, you know, I remember uh, many a time when when that was not the case. You know, there was a a big old absence to to a point where, as uh, Gene loves to point out, that uh, you know, you guys actually surpassed me, you and Bill, in the in the number of appearances on the show. I'm I'm like, you know, 
host number three now. <laughs> Somehow, I don't know how the hell that happened, but uh. well, there was a stretch <laughs> where between work and you know all the stuff you had with moving and everything that I think you had a a long stretch where you just weren't able to come on. So yep, trying to make up for it now though. <laughs> well, lately, lately you've been you've been the rock. What could I tell you? Well, uh, unemployment definitely helps <laughs> podcasting. So yeah, I, I don't know about that. Uh, <laughs> But today we're doing shut the power off anyway. <laughs> today we're doing a I, I hate to call everything a focus episode or a spotlight episode because those are the only two words I have. But we're doing a spotlight focus episode on uh, the uh, Batman Beyond movie, Return of the Joker. Uh, so I'll I'll jump in first on this one and say I really didn't follow Batman Beyond when it was coming on when it was coming out originally and. Even though I find it to be an entertaining show when I've watched an episode, I've never gotten into the binge of it. And I've never, you know, I've just seen a handful of episodes here and there. Uh, <laughs> I saw this movie because people said, this is really good. You should watch it. So I, I've seen it. Uh, and then I hadn't seen it for a couple of years. And then we decided we were going to do a spotlight episode today. So I watched it again today. Uh, and I, I tell you, I really like this movie. I got to say, this is really good. And I'm going to leave it at that, and we'll get a little bit more into the uh, the minutia in a moment. But I figured to give you a chance to give your first opening uh, salvo on it. I have to chuckle because I, I had no idea what your history was with it. But as you were stating your history, I had to chuckle because uh, we have incredibly similar stories. Um, despite being a huge fan of the DC animated universe. Um, I also never got into Batman Beyond. Um, I watched the pilot, which is actually um, at, at least how it's presented. I, I actually rewatched it today, as a matter of fact, in preparation for this. Um, I don't remember how it was originally presented. I want to say it was a movie originally, but how it was available on HBO Max was it was split into two episodes, like the first two episodes of, of the series. Um, makes up, you know, the entire story of, you know, Terry taking over and becoming, you know, the, the new Batman and everything. I have, I, I don't dislike the show. I never disliked the show. It just, I don't know if it just was that purist in me or what, but I just never got into it either. Um, I remember watching the pilot and being like, eh, that was interesting, but I didn't feel compelled to follow it. Um, but I'm with you. I love this movie, the the Return of the Joker, and it's weird because, um, like I say, you know, I'm not a Batman Beyond fan. I never watched the series. Uh, I was only passingly familiar with it. I really detest the Joker. Although I must admit, I love the uh, Mark Hamill Joker. I mean, he's like the one exception to me. I really love his portrayal of that character. I think he's great. So the the it's kind of odd that I, I I love this movie so much and really enjoy this movie so much because you know I, I'm it's kind of somewhat detached for me. So when you line up all, all when you line up all the particulars, it should be a negative, but it's just not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's one of those things of being you know the the whole being greater than the sum of its parts type of thing. Um, but we'll, we'll get into, I, I think there's a psychology why behind, you know, why I enjoy it the way I do, but we'll, we'll get more into that. But, um, as far as the movie itself, watching it for the first time, um, I, I really discovered this kind of through peer pressure. Um, I forget where I was working at the time. This, this was a long time ago. 
um, the movie was like fairly new. So I'm thinking this was like early 2000s because I think the movie itself came out in I think it came out in 2000. It was released uh, on December 12th, 2000 in an edited version. And then the right. uncut version was released on April 23rd, 2002, which is only three minutes so, longer. But from what I understand now, I've only seen the unedited version. But from what I understand, the uh, the three minutes they cut out really did uh, neuter it a bit. I don't, I don't, I, I can't speak to. I noticed that today too. I was looking at the Wikipedia and I, I noticed that too that it states that there's a three minute difference between the two. I couldn't tell you where specifically that three minutes is. I, I do know that the big difference between the two versions is for one, the Joker dies a completely different way in the flashback scene. Spoiler, by the way. <laughs> I'm hoping if you're listening to this, you've seen the movie. So I'm, I'm going to give the plot in a moment. But, we'll um, but he, he dies a completely different way. And also, um, I don't know if all of the blood and gore was edited out, but the, the vast bulk of the blood and gore was, was edited out. I've seen screenshots, and I have seen the edited version one time. I watched it just for reference, and I have to be honest, I, I really disliked it because the way he dies, um, just it, it lacks the punch of the original uncut version. Although it was funny, uh, somebody pointed out to me, I was talking to somebody online about this, I, I want to say Aaron Henley, but I forget who it was, but uh, said that uh, they liked that other ending because the way the Joker dies is it's like a pratfall type death. So it's actually kind of a, a joke on him. And I, I that kind of sort of works, I guess, uh, if you look at it that way. But I still prefer, you know, the original. But anyway, the, the only reason I, I ever really discovered this movie was that wherever I was working at the time, I had a friend there that acquired a bootleg. God only knows where he got it from, but he he uh, acquired a bootleg of the uncut version. I think it was from overseas and. This this will really date the whole story here. But do you remember VCDs, video yes, CDs? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. <laughs> he handed me I had, I had a, a I had a copy of uh, The Phantom Menace on that before it was available on right, right <laughs> on regular DVD. So he handed me a a VCD and said, "Here, watch this. I know you're gonna like it." And I'm not sure you he even told me what it was. And I went home and and I watched it and uh, and he was right. I really really enjoyed it. So for years, uh, that was the only way I'd ever seen the movie was in this slightly pixelated, you know, bootleg VCD from God knows where of the unedited version. Now this was well before the date that. Um, that Wikipedia gives for when the unedited version was officially released in what it say, 2002, this was well before that. So it was truly a bootleg. Um, and I, I didn't even know that the unedited one ever got released. I, I was looking at something last night. I can't remember what it was, you know, just playing around on the, on the internet and was reminded about the movie basically. And I was like, you know, I haven't watched that in a long time, and I've been kind of itching for, you know, something to watch. So I hunted it up on HBO Max and fast-forwarded to the death of the Joker scene just to see which version were they showing on HBO Max and was delighted to find it was that version. So I wound it back to the beginning and sat and watched the whole thing again, and uh, and it was just great. So so that's really the, – it's the was the first time I'd ever really seen it 
you know, the way it was meant to be seen where it was, you know, nice and clear and it wasn't pixelated and, you know, the sound was surround sound and it was really cool. So I, I'd never seen it that way before. I'd only ever seen it in this really crappy VCD pixelated version. So it was hmm. really cool. Well, let me give the uh, plot to it for anybody listening. Most people probably already know it, but, you know, what the hell. This is comes to us courtesy of Wikipedia. A new faction of the Jokers gang, and that's J-O-K-E-R-Z, attempts to steal high-tech electronic equipment, but they are intercepted by Batman, Terry McGinnis. The gang reports back to their leader, who is revealed to be the Joker. The Jokers attack a press conference commemorating Terry's predecessor, Bruce Wayne's return to Wayne Enterprises, and the Joker reveals himself to Bruce, who insists that it cannot be him, despite the contrary. After fending off the attack, Terry demands information from Bruce and Gotham City's police, Gotham City Police Department's commissioner, Barbara Gordon, the former Batgirl, but neither gives him, neither gives him answers. Bruce orders Terry to return the Batsuit so he can investigate and confront the Joker on his own. Only after Bruce and his Great Dane Ace are poisoned by the Joker and revealing that he knows Bruce was Batman, and Terry administers the antidote, does Barbara explain the Joker's disappearance. Four decades ago, the Joker and Harley Quinn kidnapped, tortured, and brainwashed Tim Drake, then Robin, in which the former violently forced him to reveal details of Batman's secrets. When Batman and Batgirl found Tim, a fight ensued, which, during which Tim turned on and killed the Joker, while Harley was presumed dead. The Joker's body was buried beneath Arkham Asylum, and Tim, after he recovered, was forced into retirement, severing his ties with Bruce. Terry visits Tim, who denies any involvement with the Joker's return. The next suspect, Jordan Price, a Wayne Enterprises executive who hates Bruce, and overhears Price and the Joker's conspiring on a yacht to have Bruce killed. When a beam of directed energy weapon strikes the yacht from above, Terry rescues Price before turning him into the police. In the Batcave, after finding the Joker only destroyed the Robin costume, Terry and Bruce discover that he has used the stolen equipment as a jamming system to seize control of an, army, of an armed military satellite and needs Tim's expertise as a telecommunications engineer to operate. When Terry goes to face Tim, he triggers a trap set by the Joker, who then follows to an abandoned candy factory after surviving further attacks from the satellite. At the factory, the Joker reveals that he encoded his DNA and consciousness into a microchip built with genetic technology hidden beneath, behind Tim's ear, allowing him to survive his death by turning Tim into the Joker's replicate. Eventually, Tim will die once the Joker completely takes over the body. With the satellite, he plans to kill Bruce and Terry's loved ones before destroying Gotham City. In the consequent battle, Terry uses one of the Joker's joy buzzers to destroy both the weapon and the microchip, saving the city and freeing Tim. In the end, Bruce, Tim, and Barbara make amends while Tim recovers in the hospital. Both Bruce and Tim acknowledge Terry's worth to the Batman mantle. Two of the Jokers, meanwhile, are bailed out by their grandmother, an elderly Harley Quinn, who survived her apparent death and reformed. So now... My biggest takeaway from this movie was you could very easily make this as a live action movie and it, it would be, I think it would be very successful. Uh, it, it isn't dumbed down. This is not 
an animated movie that's made for a young audience necessarily. Uh, it's not definitely not an all ages movie. I see it as if if I had young children at this point, I think you know, and, and every child obviously you know you have to go on their own level of maturity. But I don't think I'd be comfortable showing this to a kid under twelve. Because I think it's the stuff. I think the stuff in here that would just give kids nightmares. I think that's part of the reason why I never got into Batman Beyond. Um, it is a darker take on Batman. Uh, a lot of that is because of, of the world that he operates in. It's. I don't know that they ever solidly place what year it's supposed to be, but I mean, it's, it's decades well beyond, um, you know, the retirement of Batman because in, in the first episode, you know, Batman's already shown to be an old man, you know, he's, he's yeah, gray headed. I think, he's, and he's, I think at, he's supposed to be about 80. Oh, in the, yeah. Okay. I mean, in, in the, in the set future of, of when it is. So yeah. I, but I mean, what, you know, what year would that be or whatever? But it's one of those things where, you know, it's a, it's a darker world. It's a lot of the, the thing that made me uncomfortable with Batman Beyond was the opening, the credits to the show. Um, it showed a very unlikable future, you know, a very dystopian future. Things had really uh, fallen apart. It was like it, it was a lot like um the Marvel's 2099 universe. And I always wondered, uh, you know, if, if that was purposeful or not, but I don't know. There was just something about that, that, that kind of made me uncomfortable. I mean, Batman, the animated series had its darker moments. Um, and it, you know, it had its mature themes and everything, but at the end of the day, I still felt like, you know, so long as, you know, the, the child you were presenting it to, you know, was, was of a certain maturity level and, and able to handle uh, some of the darker elements, I, I wouldn't ultimately have a problem, you know, showing it to a child. And my, I let my kids watch it, you know. Mm-hmm. Batman Beyond was a, was a whole different thing. I, I Like like you said, I, I don't know that I would be entirely comfortable with a child watching uh, Batman Beyond, you know, below a certain age, especially, you know, as you say, this movie, this movie does get really dark. Um, that I, said, I think even, <laughs> even, even factoring in the, it. factoring in the fact that Batman, the animated series had some dark moments. I think this takes the darkness to a different level. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think it was also a, a you know, a, a something of a thought to me that, you know, I I don't think Batman ever fooled himself into thinking that, you know, the war was ever going to end, that he was ever actually going to, you know, stop crime within his lifetime. But at the same rate, I, I often wondered, and maybe this is addressed in the series, I don't know, but I often wondered, like, at the end of his career, when he finally retired, and then, of course, you know, he lives for decades beyond, you know, his his retirement as Batman – and the world in Gotham City just continues to degenerate. What psychological effect would that have on him? Did he ever feel like he just wasted his life, type of thing? And um, you know, I don't know that that's necessarily addressed in the series, but it made me kind of uncomfortable with the fact that you know this guy that we'd seen sacrifice so much, 
it almost felt like ultimately he really hadn't made much of a difference at all because Gotham City still degenerated into a pretty nasty place to live, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, as we see in the in the very first episode. And, and, you know, of course, with the Joker's gangs and things like that, that it didn't really seem like things got all, all that much better. So, again, that that was one of those things that just was a little bit off putting to me. Um, I. I I have trouble kind of putting my finger on exactly why I was. I, I'm not down on the show. I just couldn't get into it, um, except the, for this. This movie is like the one exception. This this thing I really like a lot. See, in the pilot episode, if I remember right, and it's been a while since I saw it, but if I remember right, now Batman or Bruce Wayne is supposed to be, you know, whatever, late 70s, early 80s. And if I remember right, he actually puts on the Batsuit again and at the beginning of the episode and then he he's like overwhelmed and you know he's has a heart attack or something to that effect and that that's what ends up being the impetus eventually for him letting terry be his successor as batman uh and that seems to me to be more real than just batman retiring uh if if there is well, a physical reason sorry. for batman to retire i think he would stay batman until he was killed on the job I don't think his well, no. his sense of morality and everything would ever let him just say, "Oh, I'm going to sit back and watch other people fight this fight." Well, you're 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 right and right and wrong at the same time because I I just rewatched it today and I and I myself hadn't seen it in a long long time, um, so it actually starts in a flashback and it shows Bruce basically his last day as Batman. He, he has the new suit, you know, the one that Terry eventually adopts, um, which was another issue I had with the show, but I'll, I'll talk more about that in a minute. So he's, he's using this suit to kind of augment himself because he's aged and it doesn't say like how old he is, but it just shows him. And, you know, he's, he's, he looks pretty much like he did on like, the latter incarnation of Batman in the animated series, except now his hair is white and he, you know, you can tell he's aged, but it, it doesn't really disclose what age he is. And on that last mission, he both suffers what, what looks like a, like a heart attack or some chest pains or something. And he's incapacitated to a point where he actually has to pick up a thug's uh, gun and aim it at the guy in order to stop him. And it shakes him up so bad between his, uh, you know, physical ailment, whatever it was that was paining him, you know, the chest pains, whatever. And the fact that he had to resort to picking up a firearm that that solidifies it. He goes home that night, puts the suit away and says never again. And then we flash forward 20 years from that. And that's where the series actually starts. And that's the, you know, 80 something or whatever year old Bruce Wayne. So that, that last adventure we saw that, that piece of, he had to like his sixties, I guess. So, you know, that, that's where it's a little bit, it's a little weird um, because it's clearly in the future of the series. And then it time jumps again to the series that mm. we get. So it's, it's a little, it's a little weird in that aspect. Well, it, it, is, so, it is stretching yeah, he, it just he, a little bit, though, because like I said, I don't see Bruce Wayne stopping his fight against crime. I, I'm thinking that even with, with what you described, and now that you describe it, I do kind of remember that being the way it was. I'm thinking somewhere behind the scenes he's still got to be doing something to fight crime. I don't think that's that's something he'll ever he could ever stop. 
you know, eventually he just becomes Terry's mentor, uh, but because that's what he's able to do. But I don't see, right. I don't see Bruce Wayne ever just like I said being fully retired, you know. And, and we could hit on, you know, in the uh, Christopher Nolan series that you love so much, uh, when they, when they, uh, <laughs> you know, in, in the third one, at the, and when it ends, and it, it shows like basically a retired Bruce Wayne, and and that never that will never ring true to me. I just don't I don't well, see him. Like I said, I could see him being behind the scenes because he knows he physically can't do it up, you know, on the on the front lines like he is here with Terry. But I don't see him ever giving up the battle and just saying this is for somebody else to do now. I I could headcanon it this way is that and, and this is why I suspect that the creators, the writers uh, of the series probably had the scene with him wielding the gun and then being so shaken with it is that I agree with you. I, I don't think Batman would ever quit, you know, while he was physically able to, to do the job. So that opener kind of gives Batman a double whammy. Not only is he having physical problems uh, again, it looks like he, he suffers like a mini heart attack or something or, or some, something to that effect. So you've, you've got the physical you know, his body's giving out on him. So that's going to be a struggle right there. But again, I agree with you. I don't see him stopping just because his body's failing him. I, I don't. I see Batman continuing until, you know, he dies on the job or, you know, he's he's physically just incapacitated at that point. So I think that's why they added in the element of, uh, while he's incapacitated, his only way to survive the situation and to rescue the hostage is to pick up and wield a, a firearm. And he does, and, and you know, he saves the day, but he's so rattled by that. So I think it's the double whammy of his body's giving out on him. He's, he's having to face his own mortality, you know, age-wise. But then it's also, I think he feels like, even though he didn't kill anybody, he feels like he betrayed his oath. He, he betrayed the memory of his parents because he finally did that thing, you know, where he held a gun on somebody and they begged for their life, you know, which was the whole origin of Batman. So right. I, I think so to me, I, I can kind of headcanon it that way. And then, you know, him actually retiring and doing nothing. I agree with that, too. I don't I can't see him even if he's now physically unable to do the job himself just quitting. But there's a great line in Batman Mask of the Phantasm that I always liked. It's that moment where, you know, I could see parallel universes spinning off, you know, where he's pleading with at his parents' grave because he, he loves Andrea and he, he wants to have a life with her. And he knows he made this vow to his parents but he says something to the effect of, you know, I didn't see this coming, meaning falling in love with her and, and wanting an, a, a normal life. And he says, I'll give more money to the cops, you know, let them take the risk. You know, it's different now. And I, I could kind of see that being the route he goes. He can't do the job anymore and he has no more protégés. You know, he, he's forbade Tim to be Robin. You know, who knows what happens with Barbara? Eventually she becomes the new commissioner and everything. And Nightwing, I don't know, I guess there was still a rift or whatever. So there's there's nobody left, and he can't do it himself. So he is still a, a, a whatever heir, you know, millionaire, billionaire, whatever. 
So he still has resources. I can see him then turning that into something where he's using his his financial empire to, you know, augment the police, you know, maybe better equipment, you know, maybe, I don't know, robots or, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah, you know, but I, that I think even that walk I completely. I think even that's wishful thinking on his part. Uh, I think, you know, in, in Mask of the Phantasm, I think, you know, it's like, yes, that's what he wants to do. He wants to quit. He wants to lead a normal life. But he's, he's never going to. You know, that that's 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 his fantasy is that he doesn't have to do this anymore. Right. You know, I, I, I don't see it as the uh, I, I, I don't see it ever as something, you know, that he would be able to follow through and, ha- and, and live that fantasy life. That that he right. dreams of, so that that's that's how I envision that, and I think that's true to the way that he's portrayed. I you know I, I don't think there's anything out of character to say he wants to retire, and he wants to live a normal life, and he wants to be able to fall in love and have a family. Uh, you know the the family he wants to have the family life that he was denied as a child. I, I think that that right. is you know that that could be certainly go right along with his character, but he can never rest. He can never see injustice is done and then sit back and say, okay, well, I gave an extra, you know, $2 million to the police. So I'm going to just sit here and sip on my martini that, that I just, I don't think that that's not his character. That's not who he is. He's, he's obsessed. He's like Peter Parker, uh, you know, with his uncle Ben, that he he has to kind of, you know, constantly try and prevent these things from happening to other people now. But, just the same here, you know, like I said, they, they do, you know, you, you did hit on a good point with the, with the gun thing and how he betrayed his own oath and how that would, uh, you know, be a, a tremendous psychological blow to him. But even in this, even when, you know, as an octogenarian who physically really can't do as much, although he's still pretty spry for, uh, for an octogenarian because when they show him, you know, uh, <laughs> when, when they get attacked in the, uh, presentation, he's, he's holding his own against, uh, the, you know, the Joker's gang. Uh, right. But, you know, he, he's still very active as a crime fighter, even though he's not the one physically executing it. He's still putting all his focus into doing what he can. So I think that is true to his character in that respect. Uh, and and I, I, you know, I think I think it's pretty much universal that everybody loves Kevin Conroy doing the voice of Batman. I, I've never heard anybody yeah. who didn't. Uh, it was in, just as an interesting side note. I, I was I've been watching a lot of episodes of Cheers, and uh, there was there were I think it was two episodes. He appeared on them as somebody who uh, who dated Carla, uh, Rhea Perlman on the show, and I had no idea oh, really? it was him. I had no idea it was him until I, I, I as I watch these old shows and people pop up, I start to say, "Oh, who's that?" And I look. I had no idea it was Kevin Conroy until I looked it up and then saw it was him, and I thought, "Oh, wow." That's kind of interesting. He he doesn't have, <laughs> at least as far as I know, he doesn't have a very big live action resume. But yeah, I, I don't know, think so. But you could, you know, that that is one area, one one thing where you you can find him on a, on two episodes of Cheers. Uh, but uh, you know, I and I also, I think Mark Hamill is just the superstar of this series when he does the the Joker. It's it's just a phenomenal voice uh, acting. <laughs> uh, just you know, it, it's as good as you get, I think, in voice acting. And and it's really right. hard. It's really hard for me. Even all the years that I've heard it, it's very hard for me to picture it coming out of Mark Hamill's vo- mouth. 
It just doesn't sound like him to me. But that's that's another, you know, hats off to him on that. I thought casting Dean Stockwell as the adult Tim Drake was a real good uh, choice. Well, Andrew, Andrea <laughs> Romano, who does the voice casting in these shows, uh, I think, you know, just universally did well with what she did. Uh, and, and just my own personal favorite uh, as I was watching the show, the Jokers gang, I had to look them up a little bit. Apparently there's several different inc- incarnations of the Jokers gang over the course of Batman Begin, uh, Batman Beyond. Uh, and this is only one of them. But the character of Ghoul, which is voiced, another one, a surprise to me, voiced by Michael Rosenbaum, who, who you know as, right, yeah. as Lex Luthor. And he was, he was doing his imitation of Dr. Bill imitating Christopher Walken. <laughs> and I, I did see something I'm trying to remember now that 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 uh, Michael Rosenbaum had a different a different voice uh, that he did like another one that was an imitation of a famous person that he did on some cartoon and I'm not sure which one that was I'm going to see if I could find that but I, I get yeah. a kick out of that whole gang they said that what I saw is that in general, they aren't considered to be, you know, all that threatening. They're usually pretty easily easy for uh, for Batman to defeat. I'm just looking for where it said about his uh, voice, and I'm not going to find it. Yeah, so this sorry, this film actually has my my favorite. Uh, Batman voice performance by Kevin Conroy in it. Uh, I, I think he's, it's just awesome. And, and probably my favorite by, by Hamill as well, because what, what makes this entire movie for me is, uh, is really, it's, it's two scenes. It's where the Joker confronts old Bruce. Uh, and you know, the, the whole thing with Terry finding old Bruce in the cave and that, you know, that great moment where he flips him over and just for a moment, you think he's dead. The, the Joker got the last, like he, he killed Bruce. And then it turns out he's, he's not quite dead, um, that, but then also the entire flashback sequence, um, that's, that's like a, a DCAU sweet spot for me is the whole flashback story and, and basically the end of the Joker thing. And it, um, and it goes into the, but, the DCAU style, like the, the animation style changes for the flashback, which I loved. Right. I'm sorry to interrupt. And, uh, no, no, not at all. Uh, no, I, I agree with you. And that's one of the things I really like about it is, is it feels like a natural continuation. It feels like a, a natural bridge between, um, you know, Batman, the animated series and, you know, these adventures. So it, it really fits wonderfully. Uh, but the voice performances by both Hamill as the Joker and Conroy as Batman during that whole sequence, you, you can feel, um, you know, the, the gravity of the situation. You can, you can feel that this is their last, even without knowing, like if you were watching this for the first time, not knowing where it's going, you can feel it ramp up and you can tell that this is their last confrontation because everything, you know, all the cards are on the table now. And Hamill does just does a great job. I mean, his voice really carries so much of that scene. 
you know, especially as he's, you know, recounting what he did to, to Tim and turning his mind. And then, you know, when Tim started to give up, the, you know, the Batman secrets and he, you know, now the Joker knows exactly who Batman is, that he's Bruce Wayne and just taunting him and playing with him and everything. And it, it's just, it's brilliant. But, uh, even though it's, you know, it's, it's pretty short and sweet when, Batman just beats the holy hell out of the Joker. And there's this moment where he grabs him by the collar and slams him up against a box. He just growls. It's just an incredible piece of voice work by Conroy where he just growls into the Joker's face, just real low and and animal like. And he just says, I'll break you in two. It's great. I, I don't recall any other line of, uh, of Conroy's as Batman having as much power to it as that one line in this film. And I just love it. Every time I see this, it just, it gives me goosebumps. I'm like, damn, that's some excellent voice work right there. Cause you know, he's, you know, he's not screaming at him. He's not barking at him. He's not, you know, being over the top. It's just a low animalistic growl. And you can tell he has hit a nerve and Batman's ready to take this guy out. And uh, and it's just great. I love it. And and it is all sorts of psychological things going on there too, because you know, Batman is feeling responsible for Tim, and that he's in this situation. And you know, so it's not only it's not only the I have to get the Joker because he's an animal and he did this to him. It's I failed in protecting him. Right. So you know, there's layers to that performance. I think that just kind of come out. Uh, and and I totally agree with you. You could feel the power behind the the sound that would be diminished if he was louder. Right. It, it's absolutely. It, it is excellent. It really is. And and you know any anybody who who questions uh, Kevin Connery, like if you if you just haven't uh, you know watched these series, so you don't know what we're talking about, watch this and and pay attention to his his performance as Bruce Wayne. It's phenomenal. One of the things I really noticed watching this again, and I don't know that I was really all that conscious of it before, but I definitely noticed it on this rewatch, is that Mark Hamill is credited with two voice roles in this. He's credited as the Joker, and he's credited as the slimy Wayne Tech, whatever, uh, you know. Jordan Price. yeah, the the fake out guy, the the guy that we're supposed to believe is the Joker because he's got Mark Hamill's voice and he kind of looks a little bit like Mark Hamill and the Joker. Um, so he does that voice as well. But he's actually, I find, he's actually doing three voices because there are two very distinct identities for the Joker in this film. You've got the classic Mark Hamill Joker from Batman, the animated series where he's yes, he's sinister and yes, he's evil, but he's he's still very much the the jokey clownish you know, kind of Joker, you know, in a lot of it. But when he's the joke, the returned Joker, you know, just wearing that that form fitting sleek purple outfit and the slicked back hair. He's got the voice, he's got the sinister demeanor, but he's pretty much all business. 
he still jokes around and, and, you know, he makes you laugh with, with things that he says, but he's not, uh, you know, crazy clownish, funny joker. He's pretty much straight. And, uh, and that's, that's a pretty remarkable job to pull off voice wise. Um, I mean, you know, yes, there's physical differences between the two incarnations, but I noticed a, a real psychological and voice difference between them as well. And I thought that that was really interesting. I, I don't know what, what the decision process was behind doing that. I mean, there's a lot of things you could read into that. Like, is there an influence from Tim's personality that's, that's making him a little more methodical and a little more toned down, or is it just, you know, that he's, uh, he is the Joker, but he's not the Joker. You know, it, it, you know, it, what is it exactly that that makes him, uh, you know, the the same person yet different? Is it that he has died and come back, and it's changed him psychologically? So, I mean, there's so many levels you could examine that on. I find that really, really interesting. I, I totally agree with you on that. And the other thing along those same lines, uh, you know, as far as uh, psychological is in the battle at the battle at the end between Terry and the Joker when he starts like going into the whole you know Batman never laughed at you because he never had a sense of humor and that's what egged you on like that that he became like the the Joker's white whale because he didn't have a sense of humor right. and then and then as Terry starts pointing it out it just makes the Joker more and more and more manic because he's he's reading into his <laughs> his psyche and it just you know it, it, it the final battle was was really well done I thought because it goes back and forth uh, you know Terry gets the upper hand and then he's down on the ground and he's he's ready to get killed and but then you know he finally pulls out the uh, the joy buzzer and, and shorts out the, uh, the, the the microchip that's creating him I, I think it was all really well done I think this this was actually written by Bruce Tim. Uh, excuse me, by Paul Dini, my mistake. Uh, Bruce Tim and Greg Murakami uh, did the story. Murakami? I think it's Murakami. Yeah, I think yeah. you're probably right. They did the story with him, and then the screenplay is by Paul Dini. Uh, but I, I think they, you know, I think they hit it out of the park. To be honest with you, I think, like I said, I, I could easily see them taking this, this same script with only just very, very minor tweaks. And making a live-action version of this that you could put in the movie theater and would probably make a ton of money. I agree with you. Um, however, I, I did have a question I, I thought of earlier today. Um, do you think that not necessarily this movie, but Batman Beyond, uh, you know, the, the the aesthetic of the original show? Because I, I know the characters still around today. I know they're still putting out comics uh, of Batman Beyond. I think he's become an actual um, in-canon thing, you know, that it's not necessarily – it's grown beyond just the animated series universe, if you know what I mean. Yeah, well, much like um, Harley Quinn. That, yeah, exactly. That said, going by this aesthetic, you know, just strictly the series and the aesthetic of this film in, in the future universe – do you think it has dated well? Because that was my other thought um, when the series debuted. And another one of those things that lent in, into me not getting into the series and, and not watching it is I remember 
actually thinking at the time when the series was new that, ooh, this is not going to date well. Because it, it did that thing that, like, 2099, you know, Marvel's 2099 universe did too, where it tried to come up with its own slang and lingo and and tried to take, you know, current 90s technology and, and kind of where we were societal-wise and everything and kind of forward project that into a, a darker and, and dystopian type of uh, world and, and environment and government and everything like that. And as much as I enjoy that stuff, I, I find that going back and looking at a lot of 2099 didn't date very well either because the, the slang and the jargon seems really kind of cringeworthy in a lot of ways. Um, you know, they're using CDs and things. And, you know, so a lot of the tech didn't date very well either. And I just, I wonder what your take is on that, you know, as far as, you know, does the show date well? Because one of the, the really nice things about like, say Batman, the animated series and also Superman, the animated series is that the worlds that they lived and operated in were very nebulous as to like when they're taking place, especially Batman. Batman had this whole like uh, art deco retro futurism thing going on that, that really made it hard to place within a time period. And they didn't drop a lot of topical references, although they did do some. So it holds up pretty well, you know, when, when you look at it that way, that the world kind of has its its own technology and it's going at its own pace. But I don't know. I, I look at Batman Beyond and it just it it doesn't seem it seems like it's much more dated to me than those other series are. And I wonder what your take is on that. See, just, you know, the Batman, the animated series, I thought uh, was very anachronistic because you have what appear to be like cars from the 1940s and then you have technology that would exist you know not till much much later than that and i do i do think they wanted to be nebulous about when it was taking place and they wanted you to kind of not really ever pin it down this clearly is supposed to be in the future and i think anytime you do anything uh in the future you run the risk that technology actually catches up to your predictions for the future and maybe even passes it and uh, yes, I'm talking about Star Trek. Uh, you know, there's, there's, things, there's things on there that, that just you look at and you're like, wow, you know, if, if only they had my cell phone, they could do so much more than what they do. Uh, <laughs> but when when a series is well done enough and when episodes are well done enough, I think you can overlook that, you know, that that lack of foresight as to what the future actually will hold. I, I, I find that things are more dated when they do try to give topical references on them. And it's something we've talked about on, uh, you know, a lot of the comics that we've uh, reviewed. And just recently we talked about it with, you know, when they show the president and, you know, or, or a celebrity or anything, you know, those are the things that really date things or, or I, you know, I, I personally really dislike when they actually put a, an actual date onto something, you know, born this year, died this year. And, and then, you know, years later you're looking at it and you're like, okay, well that's, that's kind of, you know, <laughs> that that's that's no good anymore um right you know the future here uh i i do think you know your parallel with 2099 is is pretty much spot on because it does remind me a lot of uh you know the spider-man 2099 future uh but just the same it didn't bother me it it doesn't bother me it's not so far into the future that you feel like it's got to be 
you know, like crazy advanced off of what we are now. You know, we're still, you know, Bruce Wayne is still up. So maybe, you know, when when this came out in, in the, you know, early 2000s, they were talking about maybe, you know, 2040 or so that this is supposed to take place. And I, I, I'm, I'm fine with it. Like, it, you know, it, it, it sits well with me. I, I, I didn't mm-hmm. watch it and feel like, oh, this is so dated. But then, you know, I watched the future world of uh, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, and that doesn't bother me either. <laughs> so, you know, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm always willing to accept these kind of things. Or not always, but if, if, if it's well done enough otherwise, that doesn't bother me. What else did I have on this? I'm just trying to think now. Uh, I did like at the end that, that you had a, the grandmotherly Harley Quinn, although I can't imagine that that's what she'd turn into one day. Well, I can't imagine that she, she you know, just because she, you know, had that, you know, the, the plummet into the dark there and Batgirl, you know, for the moment thought that she was dead, that, that that would be it for Harley. Like she'd be like, well, you know, I, I guess I'm done. But I, I don't. I mean, well, maybe. you know, I mean, if she, you know, why she'd be done? Because the Joker was done, as far as she was concerned. He was dead. And right. She, she's right. Yeah. You know, she's I, got I this, this psychological tie to him. So that that's why I could accept that she would be done. But I don't see her. I also don't see her turning into Aunt May either. <laughs> Well, you know, it's it's a lot of years going by, so you know. I, I find the uh, the transformation of Tim into the Joker to be a little chilling. That's one of the things that I feel like is nightmarish for a, a young child to watch. It is, but it's also like okay, so he goes from being a, a pudgy, you know, late middle aged guy, or maybe even older than that, you know, big big stocky guy to this tall slim and sleek joker and that that's a little that's a little weird don't you think well there there is according to the description there is a an actual dna change based upon this microchip so you know you'd have to accept that that dna change would actually force a physical change of the body which is you know yeah it's yeah. It's, it's it's tough to accept but you you kind of just you know, you, you rub your eyes a little and and you, and you move on. <laughs> well, I guess if I can accept, you know, a scrawny 98-pound weakling, you know, scientist turning into a, you know, a 500-pound, you know, gargantuan green monster, then, okay, I guess I can buy this with, with Tim go. Drake, too. So. <laughs> did you, uh, did you well, pay the, me? Go ahead. The, the one thing that I do notice in this, though, and, and like I say, I, I really do love this film. I'm not trying to dump on it. But the one thing that I do notice every time I watch it that is a bit of a bridge too far is the microchip. Because the Joker points to it, and he points it out. And it's basically this, like, black dot on the back of his neck, like right behind one of his ears. And I'm thinking... In 40-plus years, nobody noticed this little spot, this little chip on the back of Tim's neck. Yeah, you would it, think that the minute that, you know, that, that he was free and the Joker was dead and, and Bruce had regained Tim, who'd been missing for, what, weeks or months or something, they say in the narration, 
that the first thing he'd do is is fully check him out and scan him and you know subject him to all these medical things and everything and nobody ever noticed this microchip on the back of his neck and all that time yeah, that's a good point and really all they had to do was say the microchip was you know under the skin and you couldn't see it and you know it escaped uh, detection because of that if they had said that it would have would have uh, <laughs> you know would have eliminated that that incredulous part i agree i can't i can't defend it otherwise other than that did you uh pay any special attention to the uh to the score in this yes um this is a really weird score for me because uh i love the orchestrated pieces of it um that's another great thing that the movie does is not only does it visually shift back and forth between um, you know, the, the aesthetic of Batman Beyond and the original aesthetic of Batman the Animated Series, but it also musically shifts back and forth between them as well because when it's in the the Batman Beyond universe, uh, you know, primarily in that universe, it's very much, and I don't know what to describe that musical style as, it, it's just, it's, it's, it's weird. It's like some sort of, uh, hard rock metal music or something. I don't know. It's, it's not my genre of music, so I, I don't know how to describe it, but it's, it's very electronic-y. It's a lot of guitar and that sort of thing, and it, it's very off-putting to me. I really don't care for it, which is another reason I didn't follow the series proper is I didn't care for how it was scored. But when it's in that flashback sequence, you know, entirely taking place, you know, in the, the animated series timeline, it's traditionally scored. Um, and that happens a couple of times also, you know, in, in the regular uh, part of the movie, like when Terry goes and descends into the cave to find Bruce, um, you know, after he's had the, the Joker toxin administered to him, all of that is, you know, classically scored too. Those sequences are just beautifully scored. And, um, the whole sequence where the Joker showing the home movies and, you know, relaying everything you know in the confrontation between him and and you know the final confrontation between him and batman that scoring in there is i mean it's beautiful it's really really good stuff um a lot of times with projects you know especially like animated movies or especially like animated tv shows and all um or just tv shows in general a lot of times even if they're fully scored even if the scores are fully original to those episodes you can still kind of hear where they cut corners. You know, they don't have a full orchestra or maybe it's, you know, highly um, electronicized and, you know, a lot of synthesizers and that sort of thing, trying to make it sound orchestral. This doesn't have any of this. You know, this sounds like an actual movie score and it's, it's really, really good. It's, um, I'm trying to remember the composer's name here. Let me see. I had it pulled up here a second ago. Uh, Christopher Carter, that's his name. And, uh, yeah, I mean, just some really, really good stuff. But the soundtrack, like if you were to just listen to it separate from the movie, is weird because it, it you know, there's a, a number of the tracks and a lot of the music I, I don't really care for. But when it does the, that classically scored uh, stuff, then it's I think it's some of the best stuff that uh, that Christopher Carter ever did, honestly. Um, so, yeah, I really I, you know, as, as a whole, though, I really dig the score to this. It's, it's one of the things that really makes the movie work for me. Uh, again, especially that scoring during the 
you know, the flashback sequence. That's it's really really top notch mm. stuff. All right. Um, just a, just one more point that I had was just uh, I don't remember the name of the character that that the uh, Joker kills one of the Joker's gang, who basically mouths off and then. He he does the thing with the phony phony gun and then it actually shoots him and kills him. Something like, like I, I was I was like I was kidding too. Oops, I wasn't. You know that kind of thing. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think it might be bonk. Um, but but I, not only did that you know take this up a notch as far as showing us how ruthless he was, but it also foreshadowed Tim doing it to him. And it, and it foreshadowed right, Tim right. doing it to him in a flashback. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it as far as the movie goes, it foreshadowed it. But as far as the chronological sequence, Tim doing it to him foreshadowed him doing it to Bonk. So it's, it's kind right. of, you know, creates a little, little bit of a loop there, which I, I think is just, I, I, I think it's it's just very well put together in that regard. So that that was my my last note on it. Do you have anything else on it? Uh, no. I guess it's time to answer the question: Is it yours? <laughs> well, this is not. Is it yours? So I was I was just gonna say, when we do these live action or or animated episodes on Back to the Bins, how do we want to rate them? Oh, that's that's a good question. Um, I mean, we could give it we can give it a letter grade like we do on Bins for comics or we can give it a star rating i mean it's whatever whatever you uh whatever you like well you know when we when we score you know them for uh for comics you know it's graded on story art and uh and the cover of the book so here it could be like you know story uh i don't know what would, what do you do Sto- story, story acting directing the, uh, Something like action direction, or or in the case of like something animated, you know, story, visuals, and uh, and sound, something like that. Um, uh, you know, yeah, what? I, 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 I don't know if we're stepping on ourselves just trying to come up with too many different categories. Uh, I, I, you know, what? I'm I'm inclined honestly to just give it an overall grade, and then you know we we point sure. out the the things the things that are are either exceptional or subpar we you know those are the things we point out as we discuss them sure so and it, just as an aside i do think this is very well put together so i i would give the uh direction which is by kurt gata uh i'd give that a, a high grade as well so i'm just basically i'm giving a high grade to the direction i'm giving a high grade to the voice acting uh i'm i'm deferring to you and giving a high grade to the to the music and i'm giving an absolute top grade to the writing so giving it a letter grade like we would on bins which i guess will be our uh our way of rating these i'm giving this i'm giving this movie an a yeah i'm i'm right there with you i i I actually think i'd lean closer to an a plus because it really um it really pulls off quite the magic trick of of making me really care not only about a property i i'm not really fond of batman beyond um but also characters that i'm not particularly fond of um terry mcginnis as the batman beyond i never really warmed to him all that much i mean i don't dislike him it just he doesn't really do much of anything for me 
Um, and then I'm not a fan of the Joker, although again, I, I you know I love uh, Mark Hamill's Joker. So, you know, and I think part of that reason why I, I'm kind of down on the Joker is that after this movie, I never needed any more Joker. This this, this movie to me kind of like you know, puts a capper on the Joker. It's like, I don't think it's ever going to get better than this, you know, as far as a, a portrayal of the Joker. And not only is, you know, this a top-notch performance by Hamill as the Joker, but, I mean, he literally caps him off in this movie. He dies twice. You know, the actual mm. Joker dies, and then a returned Joker dies. So for me, kind of done with the Joker at this point. I never needed any more Joker than this movie gives me, so... Um, but anyway, as, as far as a, a letter grade on the whole thing, um, honestly, I, I think I, uh, you know, I hate to start off with with you know the first one of these that we're doing and, and go straight for the A plus. But uh, I mean, it pretty much. Well, let me think. Is there any real issues I've got with it? I mean, honestly, no. Anything's going to fall into the realm of nitpick. You know, the I can't really hold the aesthetic of Batman Beyond against this movie because that's the aesthetic of the whole series. So while I don't care for the aesthetic, you know, this, this movie's just following what the series had. Um, I think the score is, is fantastic. I think the animation is top notch in this. It really flows nicely. Um, you know, there's none of that, uh, wonkiness that sometimes happened in some of the other DCAU, uh, animated, uh, episodes and properties where you could tell that like the B team was working on it or they were rushed or, you know, it came back really badly from the overseas market and they just didn't have time to finish. There's none of that stuff uh, with this film. I mean, it, it really looks great uh, and flows really well. So yeah, I mean, other than the thing with the, with the computer chip on the back of Tim's neck, I can't think of any like, uh, you know, major or minor nitpicks I've got with it beyond that. So yeah, I, I really dig the movie. I think it's uh, I think it's top notch. So yeah, I think I'm gonna go straight up A plus. I highly recommend it. And that's coming again from somebody that doesn't really care for Batman Beyond. Yeah, cool. All right, so that'll do it for this one. Uh, I guess thanks everybody for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.